For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children, and all of his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him in prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. I began my serious biblical studies in the late part of the last century. So long ago, in fact, that you might say it was in a different world. And in that different world, I learned to interpret Jesus' famous parable of the two debtors. One thing I learned about it back in the last century was that the amounts of money in it were completely ridiculous. The first debtor, for example, owes 10,000 talents. Given that the average worker at that time earned about one denarius a day, and there were 6,000 denarii in a single talent, that would mean that the average worker would have to work about 200,000 years and save everything that they earned with no expenses in order to pay such a debt back. Ridiculous, right? That's just an unimaginably large debt. I live in Canada, and if we put that in the terms of the average modern Canadian wage, if we calculate how much an average Canadian today would earn in 200,000 years, we are talking about approximately $11 billion. And so, I was told and I read, obviously Jesus is speaking about a wildly 
unimaginable amount of money here. The very idea that someone could ever accumulate such a debt, much less dream of paying it off, is clearly unthinkable. The notion that any creditor could possibly forgive such an amount, equally ludicrous. So, obviously, the conclusion went, this parable was not talking about practical, earthly realities. It had to be about sin, and the forgiveness of sin, and it could not possibly be any sort of critique of such things as the modern banking or financial system. And there was even a somewhat sympathetic interpretation of the actions of the first debtor that went along with that. It was said that the reason why he refused to forgive the debt of the other fellow, the one who owed a hundred denarii, or about a third of a year's earnings, placing him in a what we might recognize as the middle class today? The reason why he wouldn't forgive him was because he simply could not believe that his own 10,000 talent debt had been forgiven. He thought that he still owed it, and had only got what he had asked for, more time to pay. He thought he had to collect his debt in order to pay his creditor. That led, of course, to an application of the parable that taught people to accept that their own sins had been forgiven so that they could learn how to forgive others as well. That is what I was taught that the parable meant. That, and only that, period. And, don't get me wrong, that is a perfectly acceptable application and use of the parable. It may even be at least part of what Jesus intended. It's certainly what the author of the Gospel of Matthew understood the parable to be saying. But I do not believe that parables only have one interpretation or application. That's one of the things that makes them so powerful. They continue to surprise us with the various ways that we can understand them and apply them. And besides, everything that I was told about this parable in the 1980s and 90s and early aughts turned out to be completely wrong anyway. Oh, you think that the amounts of money in this parable are so exaggerated? That such a thing could never happen in the real world? Really? Really? Then I'd kind of like to know what rock you've been hiding under for the last couple of decades. What if I were to tweak Jesus' story a little bit? Would you still find it to be impractical? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.20 The Bailout
the slave had a problem. Let's call him Max because he had a problem of maximum size. Max had invested his company's money into some pretty shady deals. He was particularly invested in loans and mortgages that were such bad investments that it was practically guaranteed that the people who had taken them out would default on them. But Max had figured out that that would be okay, because when they all defaulted, he would just foreclose on them and sell their property again for even more money. It was foolproof. And in order to safeguard these investments, he had bundled them all together into what he called mortgage-backed securities, so that even though they were individually almost worthless, when you put them all together and pooled the risk, they seemed like a rock-solid investment. Indeed, he even had another slave friend certify that the mortgage-backed securities were very safe investments, with very little risk, so that everyone else wanted to buy them too. Things were going great, and he was making tons of money, living the high life. But then, things suddenly crashed. Interest rates went up, and all of a sudden it seemed that everyone couldn't pay off their debts and mortgages all at once. But since all of the houses and properties were seized at once, the market was flooded, and nobody was buying. All of the seized properties and houses were practically worthless. And even those who managed to hold on to their houses found that they lost their value too. And so, almost overnight, the clever slave went from being extremely wealthy to being in debt. How much was he in debt? Was it $10 billion? Was it maybe $11 billion? <laughs> That's chump change. Max barely would have lost any sleep over an amount like that. But this was, he had to admit, a bit more. He was $700 billion in debt. When the king heard that his slave had somehow managed to rack up such a massive debt, he was concerned. He summoned Max before him and demanded some explanations. And when the slave came, he made a great show of regret and repentance. He put on sackcloth and ashes on his head as a sign of his deep repentance. He said that he was sorry, but he just wouldn't be able to pay off his debts. 
The king was a wise man who understood the consequences of things. He realized that this was actually a bigger problem for himself and for his subjects than it was for the slave. If Max's various businesses and enterprises, which were deeply integrated into every part of the economy, failed, it would create so much chaos and disorder that people everywhere would suffer. Max's impact was so maximized that he couldn't be allowed to fail. And so the king heaved a big sigh and said, All right, I'll do it. I'll cover your debts. Now, how do you suppose it was possible for the king to take the hit of such an unimaginable debt? Well, of course, he had the theoretical ownership of all the assets of the kingdom. He merely needed to borrow against them. The big problem, however, was that this would have many trickle-down effects on the very people who had already suffered so greatly from Max's machinations. It would lead to rising prices, while people saw their wages restrained. Their savings, if they actually had any, would lose their value. In fact, the problems that this would cause were so far-reaching that it was hard to even predict what they would be. Oh, it would be bad. There was no doubt of that. But nobody could say exactly how it would be bad. And that uncertainty just seemed so much less urgent than the disaster that was looming in the moment. So, what could the king do? He bailed out his indebted slave. He did make an effort, to be fair, to set up a few guardrails in order to make sure that this kind of thing couldn't happen again. But that was about all that he could do. As the newly debt-free slave left the presence of the king, he quickly took off his sackcloth and brushed the ashes from his hair, absently tossing the rough clothing and the dirty brush to his assistant who hovered nearby. Did Max believe that his massively, impossibly large debt had truly been forgiven? Of course he did. He knew from the beginning that this was exactly how it would work out. And now that the unpleasant groveling was over, he quickly turned his attention to the fun part. Max started with generous bonuses for himself and everyone who had set up his whole scheme. Next, he started paying off the lawyers and the lobbyists 
who would make sure that any of the king's guardrails were quickly demolished. He had basically just brought his king and many people in the kingdom to the very brink of utter ruin, and yet somehow only managed to end up richer and more powerful. He knew, of course, that someone in his organization would have to be a sacrificial lamb. Some low-level person would get charged, maybe fired, possibly even thrown into prison. But that hardly affected him. He was busy thinking about where he could go from here. What would be his next conquest? How could he become even more fabulously wealthy? Sometime later, another problem began to arise in the kingdom. Many of the king's slaves, in order to do the specialized work of the kingdom, had received, at their own cost, specialized education. They had been required to take out heavy loans just to afford it. But then, once they were done, their wages were so depressed, and housing and other costs were so high as a result of all the fallout of Max's affair, that they just couldn't pay off their debts, some of which were in the tens of thousands of dollars. They began to petition the king for some debt relief, and he was making some very sympathetic responses and even prepared some legislation. But then Max heard about it. Max knew that if the workers got some relief, it would make them less reliant on him and his industries, and might even put some upward pressure on the slave wages that he paid. And so he and his friends began to put out a media campaign that condemned any debt relief measures for student loans. They complained that it made no fiscal sense, that it would cause inflation, and that it would reward the bad behavior of people who took out loans that they couldn't pay. Finally, with their lawyers and lobbyists, they managed to quash the debt relief legislation altogether. And what happened when the king realized what Max had done? Did he summon him and say to him, you wicked slave? I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slaves who were suffering, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, did his lord hand him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt? 
I certainly hope that he did. I must say that ever since the 2008 financial crisis, I just cannot hear that parable of Jesus in the same old way. The crisis basically proved that everything I had been taught about the parable was just plain wrong. The amounts of money in it, far from being wildly exaggerated for effect, turned out to be just a little bit on the small side. And, in fact, if you want to read it as a parabolic commentary on our modern economic system and priorities, it turns out that it is actually quite believable. It turns out that people who have massive, unbelievable amounts of debt find it so much easier to have their debts wiped clean than do those who have to borrow just a little bit to get by. That is unquestionably the world that we live in. In fact, the only part of the story that really seems a bit hard to believe is the part where the rich debtor who gets his mistakes bailed out actually gets punished for opposing some basic debt relief for his poor fellow slave. I mean, when have you ever seen that happen in our world? But of course, that is why Jesus told the parable. Because he believed that he knew where the priorities of God actually lay. He told it to promise that the ridiculously wealthy, the too big to fail, will indeed face the consequence of their actions. That is the kind of God that Jesus proclaimed. And though I know that we're not going to be able to completely overturn the economic priorities of our society today, I find it interesting that Jesus stood up for the belief, for the possibility that things could be different, that priorities could be more aligned with God's vision of economic justice. And so, maybe we shouldn't be afraid to speak the words of Jesus in this story. The words that I think he was saying are the words of God to those who have contributed so much to our present economic mess. You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave, as I had mercy on you? That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks and do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. 
The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da by Kevin MacLeod. And the mood music for this episode was The End of All Things by Tim Kulig. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. Sound effects from pixabay.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible or on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast, and a special welcome to new story-level supporters, Emma and John Borthwick. You are amazing people. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>